This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Our scripture reading this morning can be found in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Again, that's the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Good morning. For those of you still looking for where Zephaniah is, it's page 1001. And if you would grab your Bible or the hymn Bible, uh, Pew Bible, and turn there, that'll be a help as we walk through these first six um, verses of this book. And just before we do that, let's take a moment and pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we gather today, as we gather around your word, as we look into the Old Testament as a, uh, as a church and as we look and seek your face, we pray that we would see you. We would see you more clearly. That our hearts would be made soft as we see you, Lord. That those areas of our life that need to be reshaped and remolded to make us more in the image of your beloved Son, I pray that you, O Holy Spirit, would do that. For those of us who come and a book like Zephaniah uh, brings with it uh, maybe trepidation as we recognize prophets often speak judgment. And so, God, I pray that we wouldn't just hear words of judgment. We would see a holy God, a holy God who, while he does threaten judgment, also promised hope. And, God, I pray that we would see that that hope is founded in your Son, I pray that we would see that the judgment of God was poured out upon Jesus. I pray that we would see that Jesus truly is our only hope. And God, I pray as a congregation that we would cling to Jesus. I pray that our eyes would be fixed on him this morning as we recognize there are many of us that are carrying some big struggles. Lord, we pray for Carrie and we pray for Kathy as they face the uncertainty, Lord, of all the testings and, and, and all the trials that they're facing regarding the cancer. And we just pray for Carrie's body, Lord. We pray for healing. We pray for care. 
We pray for wisdom. Lord, we know that he is not alone. We know that there are many who are struggling physically. And we pray that you would be, as you are, always are, the great physician. You would reveal yourself as the all-powerful one. We pray that same prayer, Lord, for those who are battling emotionally. There are many who are depressed and discouraged. And Lord, we look in the newspapers or we watch the news and we can't help but be discouraged. And so, Lord, help us to turn our eyes up and to see where our hope comes from. We pray for those who are struggling spiritually, battling the same sins again and again and again. Lord, may they know the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus provides. God, speak to us this morning, and as we pray each and every week, we pray that we would be changed, made more in the image of your beloved Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for my words, Lord. I pray that I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say. But God, I pray that I would be faithful to your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. The year was 1521, and a German monk who was now called a reformer, Martin Luther, was called to stand before the assembly. It was called the Diet of Worms. That sounds exciting, huh? He was there charged with heresy by the Roman church. After days of interrogation where his writings were read and his books and pamphlets were used as evidence against him, Luther had been called to recant publicly, to renounce his views. Realizing that death hang in the balance, Luther asked for some time to ponder his answer. Going back to his cell, his room where he was kept, And through the evening of prayer, Luther arrived the next morning more convinced than ever, stating these words, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Hear that. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. He continues, Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. And here's the famous words, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. By God's intervention, Luther was taken, he was hidden for his own safety, and God continued to use him as a mover of the Reformation in Europe. While this event in many ways has been celebrated as the beginning of the Reformation, I want you to know that Reformation actually occurred well over 200 years before that through men like John Wycliffe, who is known as the morning star of the Reformation, or men like William Tyndale, who who wanted to get the readable Bible translation in the hands of every plowboy so that they would know God and Jesus Christ. See, wherever the Word of God is, wherever people are called back to the Word of God, that is Reformation. And yet, all of those Reformations in Europe were not the first. In fact, we can go back to our own Bible and see days of Reformation under kings like Joash, kings like Hezekiah, and kings like Josiah. As the people of God were called back to the Word of God. Now, in our history of the Bible, we know of a man by the name of Saul. Saul, we're told, was head and shoulders over all the other men in Israel. And he was selected to be king. He looked the part of a king. But when he was called to be the king, we see him hiding 
afraid by the luggage, (laughs) trying to cover himself so that he wouldn't be selected for this role. Unfortunately, Saul doesn't turn out to be a good king. In many ways, he's a failure. But there was a king who came after him, David, a man after God's own heart. David was the one to whom God had given the promise that the Messiah would come from his line. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And yet, David fails. And then David's son Solomon takes over. See, David was a man of war, but Solomon becomes a man of peace. And during his reign, the kingdom seems to expand. This kingdom seems to to flourish. But then we see that the wisest man, supposedly, who ever lived had over a thousand wives. Figure that one out. And in that, he was taken away into idolatry through these pagan wives. After Solomon, we're told that his son, Rehoboam, who took his place took bad advice, and a revolt started under one of Solomon's servants by a similar name called Jeroboam. Jeroboam would eventually rule, and so would Rehoboam. Rehoboam would rule Judah, and Jeroboam would rule Israel. But here's the problem. Just as their father... One, yes, physically, the other as a servant, just as their father Solomon gave in to the idol worship of all of his wives, so would Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So what does God do about all this? God, we're told throughout the scriptures, sends many prophets to both the north and to the south, warning them, calling the people to repent, to return to the Lord, or they would be punished, they were told. And punishment sure did come. For in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, Israel, was attacked by Assyria and taken off into exile. Now remember, in the B.C. period, the time works backwards. And so as time continued, we are told that the southern kingdom was warned. But eventually, because of their stiff necks in the year 586, they too would be attacked by the Babylonians and taken into exile. It's during those periods where the northern tribe was away in exile and the southern tribe was busy being warned by the prophets of old that we read about this prophet, Zephaniah. Zephaniah is one who warned the southern kingdom. Zephaniah was not unique. He was like all the other prophets before him. So what was a prophet? A prophet is a man. A prophet is one who ultimately has a calling from God. One who not just foretells the future, which happens sometimes, but is always foretelling God's word to God's people. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, we're told the role of a prophet. Moses was actually speaking here. And listen to what he says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you should listen. This became the mantra for all the prophets. They were to speak for God. God would be speaking through the prophets. Friends, this is a big deal. For God is stooping down to communicate to sinful man. 
When the prophet spoke, it was God speaking. And the people had a responsibility. The responsibility was to test the word that was given by the prophet. The responsibility was that as they tested that word to see if it was true, that they had a responsibility to not just hear it, but to actually obey it. And so comes a prophet named Zephaniah. Zephaniah actually literally means hidden by God. In many ways, it seems that his life was hidden and protected by God from all the foolishness that was around him. Zephaniah actually came from the royal line. His great-great-grandfather was a good king named Hezekiah. He was one of the kings that actually brought reform to the southern tribe. So Zephaniah, in many ways, came from good stock. Zephaniah served, we're told, during the days of another good king, Josiah. Josiah is an interesting king because Josiah became king at the age of six. And at the age of 26, some 20 years later, the books of the law were found. And you say, well, where were they? <laughs> well, why did they need to be found? Well, between the times, there was a man by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh was a wicked king. In fact, Manasseh is the one who is believed to have killed Isaiah the prophet. It was during that time that those who had the books of the law decided to hide them from Manasseh for fear that he would destroy them because he didn't like what was in them. He was such a worldly man, such an idolater, that he would actually attack the very word of God. And so we're told that during Josiah's reign at age 26, the book of the law, believed to be the book of Deuteronomy, the book that contains blessing and cursings, was found. And when it was found, it was brought to Josiah. He heard it, and we're told he was cut to the heart. He repented, and reform began. But understand, reform doesn't happen overnight, does it? Think about your own life. Does reform happen instantaneously? No, we believe in something called sanctification, which is progressive and takes time. And God uses the word of God to reform us into his image. This is the same true about the people of Israel. As Josiah was beginning the reforms, there alongside him was Zephaniah, who ironically uses much of Deuteronomy to preach to the people. He's quoting from the very book that was found. You can read it as you compare the book of Zephaniah to the book of Deuteronomy. He's preaching and he's calling the people to repentance. Yet again, Zephaniah wasn't alone. God also empowered the prophet Jeremiah during this time. And we see that Jeremiah and Zephaniah and others like them were faithful prophets of God's word, encouraging the reform through the word of God, warning of judgment and a coming doom against sin. And so the people needed to listen. One may ask, what was the message of Zephaniah? Look at verse 2. Look how the message begins. What a, what a rock show, if you will. <laughs> right out of the gate, with the, with the smoke and the, and the thundering and the lightning, we hear these words, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. He comes with a boom. 
This, this word must have been terrifying. This was a sweeping word of God's wrath. And notice God's wrath is aimed at the face of the whole earth. We read here that God not only speaks to the prophet, but actually that the God who speaks is also the God who will act. Look what it says, I will. God's not handing his judgment off to another. God is the one who's actively doing it. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30? Vengeance is mine, the Lord says. I will repay. Judgment is in the hand of the Lord. And yet throughout this prophecy, we discover a unique phrase. The phrase is the day of the Lord. This phrase in this book that only contains three chapters, this phrase, the day of the Lord, is used some 17 times to declare to the people what is about to happen. Well, what does the day of the Lord mean? It's a military term. It's used even outside the Bible. The term literally means that the king is going to show his power by conquering his enemies within a day. Now, the reality is that there's no ancient Near East king that was ever able to do that. They would usually have to build sieges against the, the fortified cities and would take a long time to take control of your enemy. But not for God. See, nothing is impossible for God. God brought the world into existence by speaking it. He can surely destroy it. We do well to remember why God is acting. Because he's a jealous God. God will not allow sin to go unpunished because sin is always against God. And so he begins to talk about his wrath and his anger. Look at verse 3. He says, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. Understand, this is a reverse order of creation. In the beginning, God spoke these things into existence. He created the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and then man. But here now in reverse order, he says, I will sweep away man, then beast, then birds, then fish. I will destroy it all. Everything, including animals, have been affected by the fall and God will wipe it all away. And then God uses even harsher language. He goes on to say, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. I'll cut them off. I'm not just going to sweep them away. I'm going to cut them off. Notice that he's zeroing in on the object of his wrath, man. Man's sin has brought all of this. Very similar language to the time of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, where God told Noah, I will blot out mankind. I'll cut them off. But then yet God keeps zeroing in on his target. At the, end, at the beginning of verse 4, we see now who really God is focused on. The judgment of Judah. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So at this point, we should say, wait, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I thought Judah was God's promised people. I, I thought that God had promised through Abraham, he had a great people, a great land, a, a great name. What do you mean he's going to stretch out his hands against them? Well, see, the root of the problem 
was the covenant people. The root of the problem was that they were not keeping God's name sacred. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says, Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. God first disciplines his own people, and then he dispenses justice on the unbeliever. Note the language that's used here regarding Judah. He says, I will stretch out my hands. This is important imagery. This is imagery that God used with Moses as he judged Egypt and redeemed Israel. Remember all the plagues that God performed? Moses would stretch out his hands as a testimony of God's power. But now, as it, then, the judgment of God is being seen in the stretching out of hands. But the enemy isn't Egypt. The enemy is Judah. God is zeroing in his object of his anger. God is now stretching out his hands against his people. And this should leave us at this point wondering why. What did they do? What could they have done that was so bad that God's anger would be kindled against his covenant people? Well, Zephaniah tells us. He tells us that judgment falls because of false religion. Look at the end of verse 4. I will cut off from this place talking about Jerusalem now, the place and the city of God. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. Now it's interesting language it uses there, remnant of Baal, meaning that some reform has already come. And we know that reform has started because uh, the king has already initiated it. But understand, God is still angry that there is false worship in his place. So God says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. God will not allow any false worship to exist. Continues in verse 4, and he says, and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. He's saying there are those who are supposed to be teaching the people and leading the people in the worship of me, but all they're doing is leading the people to worship false gods. They too will be judged. And then he goes on to describe other ways that they have false religion. In verse 5, he says, those who bow down on roofs to the hosts of heaven. They're engaging in the worship of creation rather than in the worship of the creator. They're worshiping the stars and the moon and the sun. And notice where they're doing this. They're doing this on the rooftops, which shows their individualistic, controlled worship. They're not going to temple. They're not worshiping God with the congregation. They're choosing to worship alone on the roofs. This is part of why in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 25, we're told not to forsake the assembling together so that we would worship together and be reminded of who we're worshiping together. And then he gets yet even more poignant in verse 5 at the end there when he talks about the broken vows. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. 
They're marginalizing God in their lives. They're, they're elevating the false God, Milcom. They're, they're ultimately saying, God doesn't really matter. We see the sin here of apostasy. We see the sin of disloyalty. We see practical atheism. They're living as though God does not exist. See, Judah and Israel were supposed to be a light in the world. But rather than bringing that light to the nations, they were becoming dark. Isaiah 42, verse 6 says, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Listen to this. A light for the nations. But rather than being light, they were becoming dark. And Israel failed and was punished. And Judah was failing. And judgment was coming. And church, we may ask, what does this have to do with us today? It's a cute story. It's interesting that there's factual proof that the people of Israel had a reason why they went into captivity. But Aaron, what does this have to do with us? Friends, the message is timeless. This message is perpetually relevant to human history. Why? Because sin is ever before us. Sin isn't just out there. Sin is in here. We're battling sin every day. And the diagnosis that underlines Zephaniah's message of judgment is this. Know that sin will not be tolerated. Know that false worship will not be tolerated. Know that apostasy will not be tolerated. You cannot ignore God and not expect to be judged. This is a heavy book. This is a weighty book. The message of Zephaniah is one that doesn't tickle us. It actually may create fear in us. But friends, hear this. There is good news in Zephaniah. See, hope is seen. Flip over to chapter 3. And look at verse 17. In the midst of all this judgment, in the midst of, of God being calling out Israel and Judah's sin, look what is said in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. It's absolutely astounding that in the midst of his decree of judgment, he also shows mercy. But isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the picture of Christ? Christ is the mighty one who saves. In verse 17, it goes on to say, at the second half of it, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Is that not what Christ does through the Spirit in us? He gathers the outcasts. He causes those who are weighty with weeping of fear now to rejoice as he sings joy over them. Friends, hear this. While the book begins with a sweeping away in verse 2, look at what it says in verse 19 of chapter 3. Behold, the time I will deal with all your opposers, 
and I will save the lame, and I will gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise. What does it say? It says he will save. It says he will save. And in verse 20, he says, I will restore. He says, at that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among the people of the earth. I will restore your fortunes. My professor, Dr. Belcher, used to explain it this way. He said, the book of Zephaniah opens with one of the most horrific descriptions of God's judgment, and yet it closes with one of the most moving pictures of God's love. See, in this book, we see God's anger, and we see God's mercy. But what's the call? The call is to repent. The call is to repent. See, make no mistake, sin will always be judged. It's either judged in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the believer, or the unrepentant sinner will pay for it at the last day in the future judgment. The question for each of us is, which am I? Am I in Christ, or am I on my own? Friend, if you claim to be in Christ, you are to be living for him. You're to be obeying his word. You're to be worshiping him alone. All of us need reformation. All of us need to be reformed. All of us need to be reoriented to the worship of God, to be killing idols, or as old John Owen used to say, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. We have the problem because of what they call mission drift. And that's why reformation is constantly needed. Reformation begins, friends, with the word of God. It begins with a repentant heart. It begins with one who sets their eyes on Jesus. Friend, maybe you have drifted. Well, my challenge to you is to return. Return. That's what the Apostle Paul said to the church of Corinth. He said, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee. Run from it. Turn from it. Free the things that are making you more like the world and run to Christ. Cling to Christ. Love Christ. Serve Christ. But it all begins with knowing Christ. Friends, may we all heed Zephaniah's call as found in chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, Call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. May our worship be focused on the living and true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this book, as we walk away from this chapter, as we settle on these truths, Lord, I pray that you, O Holy Spirit, would do your work in us. Those areas where idol worship exists, where we promote the creation over the creator where we're busy living as though you don't exist in those areas where we have apostatized and walked away from the truth of God's word help us to repent help us Lord in all things to honor you to love you to worship you create in us a clean heart O Lord and renew 
your spirit in us, we pray. And God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.